When you're a kid, you fully understand that you are not in charge. <laughs> Kids just, they fully understand that they are not in charge. When you're a kid, you are told what to do, when to do it, uh, how to do it. So, so as a kid, you sort of learn to submit to the authority. You, you learn that there is an authority and you are not it. You learn to, at least in theory, functionally in theory, we learn to submit to those in authority above us because it's pretty clear that that's not us. I was thinking about this some this week. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, when I was a kid, I remember people in authority sometimes saying things that I thought honestly just sounded crazy to me. Have you ever thought about some of the things that parents say? Uh, figures in authority generally, but especially parents, uh, things that parents say to their kids that just sounds totally uh, off the wall. And from the vantage point of a kid, uh, these you know phrases that are commonly used by parents kind of sound like gobbledygook. It's a, it's a, you know hard to fathom what they're talking about. And you sort of go away thinking, what on earth are they saying? So I came up with a list of a few things that I remember my parents saying, and I've heard other parents say things that, looking back, may sound crazy to kids. You ever hear this one? This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Been there, done that. Received the spanking. Gave the spanking after having uh, said that myself. I remember hearing that from my, ch- my parents as a child and, and, and just thinking, wait, wait, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt, hurt me. No. No, it's not. This is, this is most definitely going to hurt me. In fact, I think by definition, I remember thinking something like this as a kid. By definition, when you are inflicting pain on me with your hand by spanking me, I will automatically be receiving more than the non-pain you will experience by me not spanking you. This will definitely hurt me more than you. I just remember thinking some of that kind of stuff as a kid. Or how about this one? Uh, don't look at me with those eyes. What is that? Oh, these. Okay. All right. If, if I were to do that to my parents and shut my eyes and look at them with my non-eyes, that would have been an automatic, uh, you know, spanking. This is going to hurt me more than you again. How about this one? If you are going to act like a child, I'll just treat you like a child. <laughs> I mean, clearly, clearly to a kid, they're thinking, oh, no, no, please, act, uh, treat me like a child. I- I'd really rather not be treated like an adult. In fact, I'm going to just go ahead and act like a child. Is that okay? Uh, or, or how about when parents get to that place where they're just so frustrated they can't come up with words? <laughs> Uh, all those places where they can't think of anything half intelligent or rational, so they, so they just kind of go to the don't make me tactic. And that can be followed by all manner of things. Don't make me tell you again. Uh, don't make me pull over this car. Uh, don't make me come back there. That kind of stuff. You remember some of that? Don't worry. I won't make you. You just stay up, stay up front there. And then perhaps the most classic, uh, the weirdest craziest thing that parents sometimes say to a kid is because I said so. Now, now let's be honest. How many of you had parents who said that or you have said that to your own children? Because I said so. Uh-huh. Some of you are lying. You don't have your hands up. 
because I said so can be followed with all manner of uh, crazy things. Uh, there are versions of it like because I'm your mother, because I'm your father, because I'm your parent, uh, because I am the one who cooks your meals, pays for your clothes, and if you still want to keep your Legos, you will clean your room. That kind of thing. Or at least that's what my wife says to me when she talks about wanting to have me keep my Legos. When you're a kid, you fully understand you're not in charge. There is an authority and you are not it. You learn to submit or there will be consequences. And the thing about this as a child is you don't really misunderstand this. You, you understand this as the fact of the matter. You understand that that's how life is and you don't, you don't really understand those crazy things people say or especially the parents say. You don't understand that as mistreatment. You just understand it as a necessary part of life. Submitting to those who know more than you do. That's just part of being a kid. But then we become (laughs) what is commonly known as an adult. And in theory, we know things. Get some years on a person and they think they know enough. This is the dangerous stage of life called adulthood. Now, now, not all adults think they know enough. Some think that they don't know everything they thought they once knew. Those are real adults. Those who know that they don't know as much as they thought they used to know. Those are real adults. These other more dangerous so-called adults just don't know they don't know everything. They're dangerous because they actually think they know enough. And these adults, the adults who think they know enough, these are the ones that have trouble with authority. Now think about the shift here. What once was natural as a child to understand, oh, I just don't know enough to be the authority. The shift is that once this submission to authority thing which was natural now it's hard i think this is why jesus said to follow him like a little child children just follow naturally and we don't need to know everything in fact we can't know everything what we just we need to know is that god knows everything i mean we track it on that at least now now you may be thinking yes okay great i agree with you so far God is the authority. I'm with you. It's the other people I have the problem with. What if the person in authority, what if the person in authority is not only somebody who wields that authority in ways that you don't like or that you might do differently? I mean, that's one thing. But what if the authority is somebody who actually has a disdain for you? What if the authority is someone who actually wields that authority, not just in ways that you may not agree with or you may not like in general terms, but wields that authority in a way that has to do with getting at you personally. Now we've got a real problem. I mean, how do you, how do you respond to those kinds of circumstances? Because, because that's part of adulthood, learning to deal with those circumstances. How do you treat that person? How do you respond in that kind of situation. Well, that's exactly the situation for young David 
before he became king. In fact, for many years of David's life, that was exactly the kind of circumstances he was in before he became king. You see, King Saul, the reigning king before David, did not like David. 2 Samuel 3.1, which is a, a summary after chapter after chapter after chapter after many, many years of David dealing with King Saul's mistreatment. 2 Samuel 3.1 summarizes things by saying, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David, despite the mistreatment from Saul, and here's the key of what we'll see today, he honored King Saul as a way to honor God. He honored King Saul as a way to honor honor God. In in a circumstance that, that, frankly, is practically beyond the kinds of circumstances we have dealt with when we are frustrated with an authority. You see, there's a closer connection to honoring God and honoring people than we care to admit. There's a close connection between honoring God and honoring people. Jump in at 1 Samuel, the 18th chapter. We're going to spend most of our time in chapters 18 and 24. Um, We'll look at a few others along the way, but most of the time here will be 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 16, and 24, 1 through 7. In 1 Samuel 18 here, this is where Saul's hatred for uh, David, and hatred is not too strong a word, this is where Saul's hatred of, uh, of David begins, at least in the text. So pick it up there at verse 6. This is right after David had struck down Goliath, the giant Goliath, which we talked about last week. It says this, verse 6, As they were coming home, all of the troops, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. This was typical behavior when the king and the troops returned uh, from war, from victory. The people would take to the streets and sing praises uh, to, the, to the king and to his army. Now look at verse 7 there. This is something we're going to camp out for a minute here about verse 7. The women sang to one another. It's just giving us color to what it just said in verse 6. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now press pause here. We're going to camp out for a couple minutes because there's some really interesting stuff here that helps give some color to what's going on and why uh, for Saul this was such a a point of contention uh, for him against David. A couple things to note. First, uh, this song that these women were singing here was a, a sort of a typical ancient Near Eastern song for singing the praises of a king or a warrior who is returning from battle. There is uh, extra biblical evidence, meaning outside of the Bible, extra biblical evidence of this exact kind of way of singing the praises of a king or a warrior returning from battle. This specific way of speaking or singing or talking about thousands and ten thousands. It's hyperbole. It's an intentional exaggeration that is meant to sing the praises of those returning from battle. Now, these women have no earthly idea how many were actually slain. They're just singing the praises of the king and the warriors as they return uh, from battle. So that's some of the background that helps us understand what's going on here. Now, second thing to note 
this is written here and placed here in a specific form, uh, in fact, in our Bibles, to help us understand that this is a Hebrew poetry form. That is why in most of our Bibles it is uh, offset from the previous and the next contexts, and it is indented to show that it's a Hebrew poetry form. Now, I point out these two things because this is, uh, and if your Bible doesn't do that, sorry, it probably should. Um, I say these two things because uh, it's a common uh, parallelism that's going on here. These women are, are, are saying something that would have been commonly said about uh, people returning from battle. And uh, it's an exaggeratory phrase, exaggeratory phrase that's used in parallel. You see, it's thousands and ten thousands uh, to show that they killed many, 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 perhaps thousands, perhaps ten thousands coming back. And boy, aren't they amazing warriors. We see examples of this in Scripture in quite a few places, actually, in general, in general terms. We see it specifically, if you look these up later, this is interesting. Psalm 91.7 and Micah 7.7 7 are two places where we see this. Actually, this same exact phraseology is repeated twice in uh, 1 Samuel later on. Uh, Psalm 91.7 and Micah 7.7, 7, if you want to look those up later. It's just a way to say lots and lots. So, here's why we're making a fine point on this. It's easy to read 1 Samuel here in the English and to read it and to read into it an intentional contrast between thousands and ten thousands and to think, well, of course Saul is upset. He is upset because of how they're saying that. But their praising David more than him is, as a contrast isn't the only way this is to be taken. It is a common enough parallel and the expression is so common, the way that they're saying it is, we don't know how many he killed. Thousands, ten thousands, both of them. They've killed thousands, ten thousands really. Who knows? We're just glad that they're back and that they've won. I mean, let's think about it practically. These women don't know how many they've killed. In fact, ironically, Saul is given the pride of place, which was very important in Hebrew poetry form. So Saul is mentioned first. The king is back. Saul has slain his thousands. David has ten thousands. Which is to say, in the culture, no one would have necessarily read it as a contrast between the thousands and ten thousands. But Saul does. Saul does. So what we see here is that Saul took it in as negative a light as possible. He didn't have to read it that way. Many of them commonly would not have. There's evidence from Scripture and other places that people didn't. So he understood it. He understood the women as singing it as an overt contrast between him and David. They think he's better than me. They think he's better than me. But it didn't have to be understood that way necessarily. To stress that is to say, this is what was in, Paul, in Saul's heart. This is what was in Saul's heart, jealousy and hatred. And the text bears that out. Keep reading, verse 8. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And here's where t the text of Scripture shows us that he was being as negative as possible about it. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. 
and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the whole kingdom? And here's a telling phrase from the text. This next verse is real cool. This is interesting. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The word eyed here is an interesting word. I think the author of 1 Samuel used this word eyed very intentionally because it sounds a lot like and is actually a form of the verb transgressed or sinned. So this this word eyed sounds like and it's a form of the verb for transgressed or sinned, to transgress against or sin against somebody. It's used well over 200 times uh, all over the Old Testament as a verb to talk about sinning against God or sinning against someone. So what the text is telling us here is that Saul had it in for David and was actively seeking ways to sin against him from this point forward. So he had his eye on David to sin against him from this point forward. Now just look at the next few verses where it continues to bear this out. And we're just taking this as representative of a whole bunch of chapters following. Verse 10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and he hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. These are the first two of actually three times when Saul tries to uh, spear him. Saul was afraid of David, verse 12, because the Lord was with him. David, but had departed from Saul. Saul knew that his own throne was threatened because of David's integrity. Jump down to verse 14. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. This is a summary statement about this this relationship issue here, this disdain of Saul for David. And when Saul saw that he had great success, verse 15, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. David kept going up in the rankings. Saul's popularity continued to plummet. Not just in, within the temple, within the, uh, the temple of Saul, but within the whole kingdom. Now, we could keep going and going with examples of Saul's hatred for Paul. But let me just point out a few places that we'll put on screen for you here as we go. 1 Samuel 18, 28 and 29. 1 Samuel 18, 28 and 29. We're going to see some of how this hatred and jealousy of Saul uh, spread not just as something that was from him to David, but to others around him. And he began to manipulate the situation for the cause of getting at David. 1 Samuel 18, 28 and 29. Saul thought that giving David his own daughter would turn David's heart against God, but it didn't work. It says this, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 19.1. 1 Samuel 19.1. Not only was Saul's daughter in love with David, but Saul's son Jonathan became friends with David. And here Saul is trying to get his son Jonathan and all of his servants to turn against David, but it didn't work. 19 verse 1, And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Uh, We're not going to turn there now, but in 1 Samuel 22, 
Saul is so passionately hateful of David that 85 priests and their families were slaughtered as a result of his pursuit of David. So this isn't just innocent flannel graph stories of silly Paul, uh, I keep saying that, silly Saul chasing after young David on the playground. This is actually uh, terrorism of the ugliest sort, of the worst kind, uh, that was getting out of control with people around Saul. In 1 Samuel, David is spoken of as fleeing and escaping from King Saul at least seven different times. He is fleeing or escaping. He's a fugitive in this whole part of his life. Some have estimated conservatively that Saul has tried to kill David uh, by the time King David becomes uh, king, by the time young David becomes king. Some have estimated that at least 11 times conservatively Saul has attempted to have him killed. So there's, there's plenty of reason. Plenty of reason for David to seek revenge to even the score. Uh, but he didn't. He didn't do that. And let's find out where that happens in 1 Samuel 24 here. This is a cool instance of David responding uh, by honoring King Saul despite the fact that Saul was after him. Look at how David responded to all of this abuse of the authority that he had experienced. Uh, 1 Samuel 24, 1-7. Pick it up at verse 1 there. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Uh, He had gotten a tip-off, so he pursued David again. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And when he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, you read that correctly. Uh, King Saul took a detour to an ancient Near Eastern porta potty Now check this out. David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. (laughs) Can you believe this scene? The men of David, yes, David had an entourage of his own men. Verse 4, those men said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. This is your chance. Finally, the Lord has given him into your hand. You can take care of him as everybody wants you to do. We all know you're the next king. At this point, everybody loved David. Everybody knew Saul was corrupt. Everybody was ready for somebody new to ascend to the throne. But look at what he did. Middle of verse 4 there. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Notice here that even just being sort of smart-alecky and and snipping off a corner of the robe uh, felt too much to him like a sign of disrespect. He said to his men, verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. In other words, Saul. To my Lord, comma, the Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David treated Saul with honor instead of resentment. 
he honored Saul because he honored God. <laughs> he honored God by honoring Saul. David recognized, in fact, that God had made Saul king. And until God unmade Saul king, who am I to know what's supposed to happen on the throne? And do you see the childlike difference? <laughs> he knows what he doesn't know. Or that he doesn't know enough. Or that he doesn't know at all. He recognized that God had made Saul king, and until God unmade Saul king, who was he to declare otherwise? You see, sometimes when we resent those in authority over us, we're actually assuming we know enough to take the place of God, who just flat out knows more than we do. And often we need to learn to honor others, to honor others, to honor God. To honor them for Him. So the, the application for us today is simple. This isn't rocket science today. Who do you need to honor that you don't? And I realize you may have three, four, five people in, in mind, but you may also have a list of three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve people that don't deserve honor. Okay, great. Just we're talking about those who do. So who do you need to honor that you don't? Let me let me say it this way. As a way to honor God, who do you need to honor that you don't? And and the question that also sort of simmers in, in a piece of this for all of us is why why? Why do we honor others to honor God? Let's go back to being a child again. Because we understand this truth. Because Jesus' ultimate act of honor to God was when he honored us by dying for our sin. Why do we honor others to honor God? Because Jesus' ultimate act of honor to God was when he honored us in ways flat out we don't deserve. To honor others as a way of honoring God is a way to act like Jesus. It's a way to live self-sacrificially. It's a way that demonstrates to those around Jesus lives in here. The witness of a group of people, a community of people who act like that, honoring those as a way to honor God, could have an impact that's far greater, far greater than trying to honor ourselves. Let's pray.